I've got the wine right here, so I was gonna open yes, it. Yes, so. and I've already started. How did this polarization study come about? Eli Finkel, who's a professor at Northwestern also, he actually studies relationships and marriage. He was like, you know, I can talk about marriage, but really, you know, given everything that's happening, I kind of want to talk about kind of one of the more dysfunctional marriages that are going on right now. The United States, we've been married a long time. Everybody seemed to kind of get along, but things have gotten a little bit worse. Just like I spit out my wine. Exactly. <laughs> Welcome to the Cocktail Conversations. I'm Michelle Mitchell. Way back in November, when we kicked off the series with an election special, we talked about how effective polarization, how much we hate each other, has increased over the last 60 years, while ideological polarization, how much we disagree with each other, has remained the same. Now, I wanted to know more about that because that sounds insane to me. So I asked Northwestern professor Dr. Cynthia Wang to join me over a bottle of, like, comfort wine, which is Kathy Corison's Gewurztraminer. Dr. Wang is the executive director of the Dispute Resolution and Research Center. She's also an expert on conspiracy theories, all of which makes her the ideal person to help us understand the driving forces of the anger industrial complex. Journalists are talking about this as, well, it's tribalism, but you're mm -hmm. saying it's not tribalism. <sighs> no, it, it's something different from tribalism. It's it, it, it's unfortunately something a little bit worse, <laughs> right? Tribalism is kind of more about the in-group. It's that we support the in-group. This is more about the out-group. It's the fact that we hate the out-group rather than love the in-group. So that's a big differentiation, and that's an unfortunate thing. You say in-group, out-group. I mean, I keep thinking mean girls. So you're not talking mean girls, <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> if you think about it, that's, the, that's our basic inclinations, right? It's Yes, that's in a high school, but it's kind of happening to an extent in the yeah. real world. It's, it's just the fact that there's cliques and we need to make sure that we stand by our cliques. We're also in kind of like the wild, wild west of social media. We can be in our little echo chambers online so easily. Echo chambers that basically reinforce our opinions. We figured out some sort of a coherent narrative that fits whatever view is that we want to have. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Believe it or not, once upon a time, there was actually concern there wasn't enough polarization. In 1950, as the federal government increased in both size and scope, the American Political Science Association worried that the two major parties weren't adjusting to the times. Its 99-page study urged distinctive, cohesive, and nationalized parties, which is what we have now. Polarization is good to an extent. You want disagreement, you want differences in opinions, but we're at the point that the disdain for the other side is so great. There's so much hatred that it's been really difficult to even talk to the other side or to view the other side as, as a human being. What would be the term that would describe what is happening right now? Yeah, so what we called it was the political sectarianism. Mm -hmm. And it's this idea that politics, it's, it's no longer just polarized, but it's become something that's very moralized and almost a religion in itself. It comes from this toxic brew of, of three things. Okay. So what she's about to lay out is really important. We talk about it as like this othering. It's, it's that we're from different planets. We can't even see each other's reality. Um, the second one is just the pure aversion. We just really don't even want to be around each other. I really <laughs> distrust you. And the last part is that moral part where I just view you as an unethical person. 
And all of this is what makes what is happening today a lot more like the more traditional religious-based divides instead of politics. So think Sunni versus Shia or Protestant versus Catholic. And that's probably not going to make you feel any better. But the key words here are othering, aversion, moralization. That is a poisonous cocktail, those three things. You used the word othering, and that was it's so interesting because I have heard that used in relation to um, genocidal violence. The fact that language has been used basically dehumanize the other side. Is that what you guys are talking about as well? We do use the term dehumanization. I can see so many ties to what you do. And, and you know, I was going to say, uh, luckily, there hasn't been violence. But obviously, more recently, there has been some violence. What you've probably seen with the othering is, is a lot of violence that's just so damaging to society. It's hard for societies to come back from that. And I think that's probably the reason why I and my team and people like you who have been, you know, drinking with us, uh, we feel a sense of urgency to get on it right now because... We know where these things can go. It's interesting you would mention this idea of aversion and moralization. We have these mega identities. It's just not a divide on one thing. It's not like you and I have differences in opinions about abortion, right? It's that we have differences in opinion about abortion. We are of different race. We are of different political leanings. All of it combined, that leads to what we call a mega identity. So it's not just one piece Mm -hmm. of a puzzle. It's like so many different characteristics falling on one side of the line. I think things are reinforcing each other right now. So in order to even be elected, you have to start taking an extreme. And that's what tends to be happening right now. You elect people that are more extreme. And then through the cable networks where things can be more one-sided, I think you can keep reinforcing these circles, right? You got people elected that are more extreme. And then there's the donors that support that. And that just continues to reinforce the cycle and lead to the outgroup hate that we're seeing today. So I think that's one of the things that has really driven the sectarianism that we've seen today. The start date of all this, according to Dr. Wang, is 30 years ago. The termination of the Fairness Doctrine, the rise of cable TV news, the dependence on extremist donors, and the moral outrage tactic that the anger industrial complex just loves to deploy. You said this has been a 30 years effort. I worked on Capitol Hill from 93 to 96. So I was there when it switched over and Gingrich um, became speaker. And uh, there was a real marked difference at that point. And I went from watching um, these two sides talking to each other and legislating together, which is the whole job of Congress, Mm -hmm. to all of a sudden you couldn't really work there unless you actively hated the other side. Wow. And and how did you see people deal with that? People left. And that's the scary part is some people will just check out, right? They'll become less engaged and there's going to be greater apathy. Goes back to this morality or moral thing. If you kind of cross the line to the other side and agreed with them, then you became the unethical one. And I think another thing that really contributed to it, we started seeing a lot more of that language around being, you know, the other side so shameful, the other side so uh, unethical. So that language, I think, just once once again reinforced that if you crossed the line to the other side in any way, you're a bad person. One of my former Hill colleagues, who's now in media, said that one of the problems he saw was that they used the other as not just immoral, but evil. Even the word evil, right? 
once again, it goes back to those huge identities, the fact that you have these donors that are supporting these extreme views, and the fact that if you do cross over, you're going to be lambasted by your own side. I talked to one professor of anthropology, evolutionary anthropology, and she was saying that we actually have in us an evolutionary need for something called shared intentionality. Academics speak for uh, we want to be on the same page. Why are we talking about this in terms of morality and hate and all that stuff? I think we want to be on the same page, but at the same time, we do want to be right. You know, there's this whole area of motivated cognition. And we're going to take any information that we have to say, hey, there's no way the other side's going to be right. We've got a couple different things. We have the natural in-group, out-group desire. So a lot of the classic psychology theories just talks about how we really, really, really want to protect our in-group. And we really, really, really want to derogate the out-group. And I think that's just become heightened. To me, COVID brought together the weirdest sides to believe that there was a conspiracy. I think I got the pandemic video. Oh, sent yes, to the pandemic. Yeah. It's been sent to me by people who, you know, are absolutely aren't going to wear a mask and the wellness community. It goes back to trying to make sense of the unknown and what conspiracy theories are great about is giving certainty to an uncertain situation. So you can imagine in a time of COVID, so much lack of control. We can't even go outside. We don't know when the economy is going to get better. We're not, we don't know when we're going to see our friends. Mm -hmm. This is a time where it's rife with conspiracies because we are trying to make sense of our reality. And to your question about is this political polarization contributing? Yes, definitely. We have conspiracy theories suggesting China laboratory manufactured COVID. Yeah. And in China, we have conspiracies that the United States manufactured COVID. And so it just kind of reinforces unfortunately, the in-group, out-group dynamics that we were just talking about that, hey, you know, they're different from us. And now we're going to form these conspiracies around them to really give us comfort about what's happening in our uncertain and really, unfortunately, difficult world right now. I mean, it kind of sounds like 100th verse, same as the first. Galileo was going to be beheaded because he said you yeah. know, that we circled around the sun as opposed to the opposite. What might have changed, going back to social media, I think that it's really contributed to not only like the spread of conspiracies, but also how sticky they are. It's really easy to go back to your echo chambers, like I said, mm -hmm. on social media. You go to Reddit, and if Reddit's not going to, you know, fulfill your needs, you can go to another place or another place. And you're always going to be able to find this a wonderful community to support your perspective or your conspiracy theories. One of the things that happened as a result of COVID is that the Olympics were canceled. Mm -hmm. And I am a big believer in sports bringing people together. And yeah. the fact that we didn't have that moment to all kind of chant USA, USA, I wonder if that also lent itself to um, increasing this polarization. Yeah, I totally agree. There's a lot of research that definitely shows, right? If you, if you can have something that pulls you together that helps you avoid the divides within. So having a, a common identity, something that brings us all together. Sports, it's a huge thing. I'm a Patriots fan, but... So you but, totally do not believe in the deflated football <laughs> Of course oh, not. That's not a real conspiracy. Dr. Wang's research found that how people think about control determine their vulnerability to conspiracy theories. People with a promotion-focused mindset, those who are focused on achieving their goals, were more resistant to conspiracies than those who were prevention-focused or focused on protecting what they already have.
Is there anything we can do as individuals? I, I think overall, ways to feel more in control are really, really important. If you're a manager, check in with your employees and say, how are you feeling? One of the things that managers generally have to do is just make sure that um, people aren't just flailing about. And human contact is, is a big part of that. I think there's things that can be done. I'm kind of an optimist like you. I think there are ways forward. I, I think one thing that can help us gain a little bit control also, like reducing the conspiracy theories, reducing the sectarianism, is really trying to correct the misperceptions of the other side. And one way I think that that can be done, I also study um, perspective taking and perspective giving. So perspective taking is like trying to walk a day in another person's shoes. It's, it's hard because we are in these echo chambers and we can self-select into these echo chambers. But if we're able to at least, you know, be more open to listening to the other side, I think that can correct some of the misperceptions of the other side. So if there's any way to engage in like these cross-party interactions or allow people to give their perspectives and tell them a little bit about, hey, this is my life as, let's say, an immigrant or different, different types of perspectives, that can really bring people together and hopefully spread some of the, this fake news that's going on about each side too, because that's what really heightens the perceptions that the other side is evil. But once you start getting to know someone, right, that, that kind of dissipates. I feel like you just laid out the entire reason why we wanted to do the show. It's harder to hate somebody you've had a conversation with. It's just a very simple thing that if you just are willing to listen to someone else's story, that, that can bridge these divides. You have to kind of understand the, the problem, understand the underlying cause before you start fixing the problem. And how do we fix it? Intellectual humility. So it's this idea of, hey, if we, you know, if we don't think we are better than the other side intellectually, and we can actually engage in a conversation in a more analytical manner, if we have people cognitively engage the issue more, they're more likely to think about things in terms of the issues rather than in terms of the evilness or the hatred of the other side. We're less likely to share that false information that makes it so much harder to resolve issues that are at hand. Intellectual humility. Now, I've never met anyone who thought they weren't smart. I mean, have you? But I really love the hope that this idea gives us. It's a way to open up to maybe something interesting and ultimately rewarding. This marriage of U.S. citizens just might be salvageable. I got married right before COVID. Mm -hmm. And my new husband, he showed up with a, a painting of a cigarette-smoking, tequila-smelling rooster matador. <laughs> And he loves this painting. And I keep thinking, I was just like, wow. But you know what? It polarized us for a long time. But the more I sat and looked at it, I finally was like, this is so absurd. We've actually got to keep it around. I think there's a light at the end of the tunnel. I think um, it's going to take some work, but there are paths to this, this nice marriage with that, with that yes. picture in the back. Yes. What do you think intellectual humility means? Let me know on Twitter at cocktail underscore convos. And remember, our mission is to create conversation that goes somewhere. And for that, we need you. Subscribe, follow. We've got some exciting things in the pipeline. And if you subscribe and follow, you will hear about them first. We are actually drinking wine together on National Wine Day. Cheers no. to patriotism. <laughs>